turn to Romans chapter 1. We tried to finish it last week. We were unsuccessful. By God's grace, we'll finish chapter 1 tonight. The world has been watching lately, however actively, however passively, the Senate trial of a President of the United States. Every night on the news, opinions are given by political pundits as to his innocence or his guilt. It's been going back and forth, and for some, it's gotten quite old, and people are sharply divided over the issue. But basically, it enables all of us to act like little judges against one person. In Romans chapter 1, we walk into another courtroom scene. In this courtroom scene, you and I are on trial. The whole world is on trial before God, who is the judge. And it's, it's more than CNN covering it. God knows every thought, every motivation ever imagined in the human mind of all people. Thus, he can judge fairly. It's an ominous chapter. And just to keep in perspective the overview of the entire book, the outline of the entire book follows a fourfold structure. First of all, the wrath of God introduced in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. The theme is the wrath of God. And it's very important that we understand God's wrath so that we can understand phase 2 of the book of Romans, and that is the grace of God, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, Concluding with the end of chapter 8, the wrath of God, the grace of God. The third phase of the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, is the plan of God in view of Jew and Gentile. And then finally, the will of God, beginning in chapter 12, going through almost the end of the book, except for some concluding remarks. That is the outline of the entire book. And so for the first few chapters, he gets heavily into the wrath of God. He paints a very black, and by the end of chapter 3, you will see a very ugly picture of humanity. It's as if before he sets the diamond out, he gets the darkest cloth possible, like jewelers often do, by the way. They'll spread out a dark cloth and put the diamonds on it so that you can see the contrast. And I think it's important to see the contrast. It's impossible to appreciate the height of your salvation till you understand the depth of your sin from which you were saved. And so Paul, in very eloquent terms, will do exactly that. Um, this chapter, these chapters, contradict flatly the humanistic notion of social evolution, that man is getting better and better. Now some of you smirk at that. Well, you should. Because Paul will say, no, there is not evolution. There is, let's coin a term, devolution. We're spiraling downward. Ever since the fall, things have gotten worse. Morally, we have become less enlightened as time goes on rather than more. Now, we mentioned last week that the word that Paul chooses for the wrath of God, he could have used many words. The most common word would be the Greek word thumos. We get the word thermometer from it or thermos from it. The idea is a red-hot boiling heat that is uncontrolled, that is whimsical, that is left up to the individual who has just sort of set 
off, something triggers that heat, and they blow up. That is not the word used. Rather, the word that is used is the Greek word orge, which is a controlled, abiding, steadfast disposition of anger. God's anger is not uncontrolled. He doesn't have bad days and good days. You know, like sometimes you'll have what you call a bad hair day. Of course, if you are bald, you have a no hair day every day. But God's wrath is settled. It is abiding. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Just so you know, once again, it bears repeating. He's going to cover four different groups, or three and then, a, then an umbrella kind of a statement. First he attacks, and we mentioned this last week, and we kind of left off somewhere in this area. He's showing that the pagan idolaters, just paganism in general, is guilty before God. So he sort of starts at the lowest level, where everybody would go, yeah, right, they're deserving of God's judgment. They've turned from God. They don't believe in God. So he begins there. Then in chapter 2, he picks it up with the moralist, the moralist who would judge everybody else, excluding himself. Then he rises to the level of the self-confident religionist, or in this case, specifically, the Jewish religionist. And then finally, fourthly, he just takes all of humanity and says, all have sinned, all have fallen short, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he quotes Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, line upon line, several different places to show that the Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is without excuse. So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How many times have you heard people say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace and love, love, love? And so you have two different gods poised in the Scripture, one in the Old, one in the New. Well, this is obviously a contradiction of that, wouldn't you say? This is New Testament. And what Paul is saying is that the same God has always had the exact same disposition towards sin. He's never winked at it. He's never been lenient toward it. He's never excused it. He will forgive it, however. And God will be gracious even as the wrath of God is revealed, the grace of God is revealed from heaven. And you just might want to compare verse 17 and verse 18 once again. The righteousness of God is revealed. And that's revealed in the gospel. And then in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We're going to see that as bad as man is, God's mercy is greater. There's no pit so deep that God cannot reach into that pit. Now, God is merciful not because he's a softy, not because he's lenient towards sin. For only one reason God is merciful, and that's because his son died on the cross to pay for sin. All of God's wrath was placed upon his son. Therefore, God's attitude toward sin has never changed. Simply now that Jesus Christ has died on the cross, it enables God to accept sinners by that one act and by believing in him. So, again, comparing verse 17 and 18, you're in one of two camps. 
You either live in the righteousness of God and have the righteousness of God applied to your life, or you live under the wrath of God. And it's always better to live under the righteousness of God. Notice that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those are two different things. Ungodliness is against God. Godliness simply means God-likeness. And it's man's sin against the nature, the character, the rule, the authority of God. It's man's rebellion against God. Whereas unrighteousness is man's, you might say, inhumanity or sin against his fellow man. So if a guy goes out, gets drunk, drives on the freeway, breaks the speed limits, gets in an accident, kills somebody, that's his unrighteous act toward a fellow man. Or if he slanders his fellow man or cheats his fellow man, the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Millions of years ago, no, I take that back. Trillions of years ago, as chemicals and substances were floating around through space, and finally this mud-clawed, dirt-clawed we call Earth evolved into being through a series of explosions in space. And floods came and more explosions happened. It was very tumultuous. Certain of these elements came together, separated, fused, And after millions and billions and trillions of years, suddenly one day, out of the pavement, (laughs) oozed an automobile. (laughs) It's just an amazing set of circumstances and coincidences that they all over time came together, but eventually evolved an automobile. That was very primitive. Single cylinder, (laughs) wooden spokes for tires, not really strong, cloth top, sometimes an open top. But as time evolved, the models changed until we have today these beautiful 1999 models, a beautiful product of evolution. Now, of course, you know that that's absolute nonsense. And it would be easy to prove because design shows a designer has been around. As ludicrous as it is to think that an automobile just sort of oozed up out of the pavement and evolved from model to model, take something much more complex, the human brain, the eye, the system of mankind. To say that we evolved in my opinion, it takes more faith than to say God made us. If you say, oh, I believe we evolved, i got to congratulate you. You have a lot more faith than I could ever produce. And it does take an enormous amount of faith. It's not faith in the smartest of things, but I congratulate you for your faith. Paul's point here is that when you look at 
creation, what the Bible would see as natural revelation, primitive revelation, but it's natural revelation, nature around us. It would lead you to conclude that there is God. His invisible attributes are made manifest or visible by what you see around you. So the creation would speak of both his person and his power. As the psalmist said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, unto day they utter their speech. Night unto night they reveal knowledge. There is no voice or language where their speech is not heard. It is universal. Verse 21, we sort of left off with these thoughts tying together and we had to drop it. Because, and now notice the downward spin from stage to stage. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not glorify him as God, says Paul. That is, the general knowledge that mankind receives from creation, that general revelation that should lead them to special revelation eventually, and should eventually lead them to worship God, in some cases did not. They did not glorify him as God. They didn't give God the rightful place in the universe as king, as Lord over all. Now, once again, general revelation, what God has made, what is on display, his artwork, should cause you to walk through the gallery and think, what a great artist. This artist is awesome. And yet mankind seems to walk through the gallery and say, it's amazing that this art has spontaneously generated. Thus, reducing the glory, the level of the artist, down to the level of the artwork itself. Reducing the chasm between creator and creation. Not giving God his rightful place. Now, the idea of this natural revelation is that people would look around and be eventually led to grope, said Paul, those were his words, grope after God in hopes that they might find him. But they don't always find him. When you refuse to give God rightful place, refuse to glorify God, you have often, well, always, more questions than answers. Listen to this little quote from 1992 after a satellite brought back information to the American Physical Society regarding the universe and its expansion, etc. And an anonymous author wrote to the journal, quote, It is difficult to know what the appropriate reaction to such mind-expanding discoveries should be except to get down on one's knees in total humility and give thanks to God or Big Bang or both for cunningly contriving to allow this infinitesimal part of the universe called Earth to be bestowed with something called air. This is always the difficulty of the atheist. Who do you thank when something great happens? You want to express emotions, and as a believer, oh, thank you, Lord. And you're, as an atheist, forced to say, oh, I'm so grateful for fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstance. 
How nice. How convenient. We see in this verse some very important revelation. That is, refusing to worship God reduces, people, reduces God to the level of man, and it's through idolatry. It says their foolish hearts were darkened. I also want to, uh, to notice an interesting phrase that should sort of cause us believers to stop and practice this more. Nor were they thankful. They didn't glorify God, neither were they thankful. How is unbelief made worse? By ingratitude. By ingratitude. Not giving God rightful place, not being thankful, because if you don't give God rightful place, you don't worship Him. Thanksgiving isn't a part of that. Remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus healed ten lepers? How many came back to thank Him? That's ten percent. And I bet nothing has changed in terms of percentage these days. I would venture to say at best 10% return to give thanks for the blessings that God has given. We have one day a year we call Thanksgiving. Isn't that weird? Now, originally it was a great idea. But it's almost as if we're saying, I have 364 days to gripe. And I'll thank God one day a year. It's the, it's the height in some people's lives of hypocrisy. I think it would be better to reverse it. Let's thank God 364 days. Let's all get together one day and just gripe. Get it all out. It's over with. And never do it again. Trouble is, with human nature, it'll never happen. Listen to this article in a news magazine. They did a, an interesting research article on prayer among Americans. The article says the majority of people we interviewed prayed, doing so in a rather superficial manner. Prayers were usually prayers of petition rather than prayers of thanksgiving, intercession, or seeking forgiveness. And they concluded God, for some, is viewed as a divine Santa Claus. That's a secular magazine interviewing Americans who say they pray to God. A divine Santa Claus. Yet, in the scripture, thanksgiving is the natural outflow of relationship with God. In the Old Testament, there were offerings called thank offerings that were part of the prescription. Is When you feel overwhelmed and you want to thank God, you bring him this kind of an offering. In the Psalms, there's spontaneous outbursts. Thanking God for His goodness, thanking God for creation, thanking God for His blessings. There's even a group of psalms known as the Thanksgiving Psalms. Notice that when Paul writes epistles, almost invariably in his letters, he thanks God for the people he's writing to. I always thank God every time I remember you, Paul often says. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever I do, in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we mentioned Thanksgiving. Originally, it was great, especially considering the time in which it was inaugurated. At that time, our forefathers, the pilgrims, were digging graves burying their dead. In fact, it is estimated they dug seven times the amount of graves for the dead than they did build homes for the living. 
Yet during that horrible time, they managed to carve out a day thanking God for his blessings. They had it worse than any other period in American history so far. And yet it was Thanksgiving. Now, we should thank God. It should be natural to us. I look at this verse, it's a little bit frightening. Neither were they thankful. Okay, I admit it. There's sometimes you don't feel like being thankful. I don't want to thank God. I'd be a hypocrite. You know what? Do it because he deserves it, rather than you feel like it. In everything, said Paul, give thanks. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So, so many of us are worried about, I want to find the will of God. I'll tell you part of what the will of God is. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So you don't have to wonder anymore if that's the will of God or not. It is. Do it in everything. Not necessarily for everything, but in everything. There's a lot of things I don't thank God for, but in the midst of them I can still, God, you're in control, I thank you. If you ever want some good, inspiring reading, read about the life of Corrie ten Boom, a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, suffering because she as a Christian hid Jews in her house and was arrested. She and her sister Betsy were transferred from one prison camp to what they called the worst of all, Ravensbrück. They were put in a barracks that was overcrowded and infested with fleas. That morning, as they got up, the next day, the first day when they were really there, Betsy took out her pocket Bible, and the scripture that she turned to for her meditation that day was 1 Thessalonians 5. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so she turns to her sister and she says, Corey, we need to thank God today. And Corey said, I'm not going to. You want me to thank God with fleas? With these kind of conditions, I mean, it's gone from bad to worse, and we've done all this for the name of the Lord. Oh, but, Corey, the Scripture commands us to thank God. So she finally gave in, and she did. It wasn't until several months later, as they were wondering, why is it that we have such freedom in these barracks to open up our Bibles every morning and have Bible study and prayer time without interruption? was because the guards refused to go into the barracks that were so infested with fleas that they left those prisoners alone. And it was only in those barracks where they could have Bible study and prayer every day. And she realized, it is you, Lord. Thank you. I read those stories and I'm humble. I'm shamed for the times that I complain against the Lord. So that's that's quite a scripture. Neither were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Interesting Greek word, moros. <laughs> That's what it is, moros. What does that sound like? Moron, you got it. However, this is not meant to be a slap against somebody's intellectual acumen. Rather, this is speaking of the word moros, of their moral condition. Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. Now David said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Actually, the original is, the fool has said in his heart, no God. The words there is are inserted, no God. In other words, there might be a God, I just don't want him. There's a difference between saying there is no God and saying no God. If a waitress at a restaurant comes up to your table and she's about to pour coffee for you, 
and you put your hand over the cup and say, no coffee. You're not saying, there's no such thing as coffee. I don't believe in the existence of the bean. No, what you're saying is, it might exist. I don't want anything. You have had enough. No, none for me. The fool has said in his heart, no God. It's the moral condition that he's speaking of here. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's why I say it takes more faith to believe that we just ooze out of the pavement than we were made by specific design of creation. The old argument that William Paley used to purport, the watchmaker, when you see a watch, it speaks of design. And if you see design, there must be a designer. So when you look around the universe and you check out the heavenly bodies, and, and you might say, well, it's just a coincidence. It just so happened that these things. Well, when you get enough of it just so happened, coincidence suddenly looks like providence. Have you noticed that? just so happens that the earth is 93 million miles away from the sun and the sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. What if we were as close as Venus? Or Mars, far away as Mars? We'd be either scorching hot or even in the warmest regions there would be ice every night. Oh, it's a very wonderful coincidence. And it just so happens that the earth rotates around the sun turning 365 times, 365 and the third times, in case you would correct me afterwards, in its journey around the sun. Why not 30 times? It spins, the earth spins at 1,000 miles per hour if it's spun at 100 miles an hour, making it 30 times, 10 times longer. The alternate heat and cool of the temperature of that revolution would not be able to sustain our present biosphere. Hmm, marvelous coincidence. Just so happened. And it just so happened that there is this interesting balanced mixture of oxygen to nitrogen, 79 to 20, 79 to 20 parts with 1% of varying gases. Amazing. It's just a coincidence. Why not 50-50? Well, if it was 50-50, hope that there's no smokers. Because the first match that is lit, it would all go up in an explosion. And it just so happens that the Earth is tilted 23 and a third degrees on its axis in its correspondent condition to the sun, giving us our four seasons. On and on and on, you get enough of those coincidences, and it looks a lot like providence. And here we are, looking for life on other planets, and not really cared about our own lives, especially our own eternal lives. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I love what the astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle said. He was talking about spontaneous generation that just happened. He said, the idea that spontaneous generation, the chances of spontaneous generation occurring in one single bacterium is about the same chances that a tornado blowing through a junkyard would assemble neatly at 747 from the contents therein. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Design. And, verse 23, changed the glory. That's very important to notice that. Changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds 
and four-footed animals and creeping things. He's showing the downward spiral. You push God out of your life, push God out of your society, refuse to give God rightful place, deny his existence, you're not going to be thankful. Your foolish hearts become darkened. You become morally foolish. And then you eventually get to the level of this nonsense, idolatry. First making God in the image of man, then making God in the image of birds, then quadrupeds, then pretty soon you fashion reptiles and worship reptiles. You can't get any lower. You start making God not only equal to a man, but then lower than a man and start worshiping them. At the very height of the Roman Empire, one of the crown jewels of the Roman Empire was the city of Ephesus. Beautiful city. You can go to it today and you can still see this place was tricked out. They spared no expense. This place is a cool place with its theater and with its library of Celsus and its marbled streets and its pillars, structures, etc. Fabulous. There was, in the city of Ephesus, however, a temple to Artemis or Diana the goddess of the Ephesians. In fact, remember when Paul visited there and they cried out for hours, two hours in the theater, great is Diana of the Ephesians. The goddess that they carved, Diana, was a grotesque figure of a woman having many multiple breasts, a trident in one hand and a club in the other. This was one mean chick that they worshipped. <laughs> From God to this image of a woman-like creature to follow some of the gods, goddesses of the Egyptians, the Greeks, and if you were with us when we traveled to India, the Hindus, where they worship 33 million gods of all sorts, animals, reptiles, etc. See, what Paul is saying is the, the pull is never upward. It's always downward. Sir William Ramsey said, the history of religion among men is a history of degeneration. Morally, we get worse. Spiritually, we get worse. We don't get any better. We might have computers and have faster chips now and be able to connect to the internet faster, but big whoop when it comes to what we've done with the knowledge of God. Now, I just want to comment on something controversial, not because I like controversy, but because I'm asked the question. I personally have always felt uncomfortable since I've received Jesus as my Savior and understood the glory and the magnificence of God. I have felt awkward about trying to reduce God to an image, a picture, or a statue for a fundamental reason. Part of the fundamental character of God is that he is unlimited in nature. Any depiction, any picture, any statue is by its very essence limited. Doesn't tell you the whole story. So to cast, once you cast the image, you've denied the very nature of God in that he is unlimited. You have said something about him. Now it might seem very innocuous and very fine at first, like probably that's what Aaron thought when he crafted a bull out in the wilderness and said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, this golden calf. I think what Aaron was saying is that our God has strength. 
because in Egypt they came from a polytheistic culture, and one of their gods was Apis the bull. And crafting this golden calf is to say, our God is stronger than Apis the bull god of Egypt. And as that is true, God is strong and stronger than Apis, the bull god of Egypt. That image said nothing about God's moral character in terms of his love, his compassion, his gentleness. You look at that and you just go, ooh. And so it is limited by its very nature. Always a danger in placing my imagination over God's revelation, limiting the nature of God, putting God to a comfortable, manageable size. And I know that there are different depictions of Jesus. I think most of them are wrong, unless you keep in mind that he was Middle Eastern, dark-skinned, dark-haired. I see these surfer Jesus, you know, these layered haircuts, blonde hair. It's like I want to see a surfboard, too, when I see it. It's like, I don't think so. We're trying to make him in our image. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged, see there's a lot of changing going on. Verse 23, they changed the glory of God into the image made like corruptible man. Verse 24, therefore God gave them to uncleanness and the lust of their flesh to dishonor their bodies, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever or blessed forever. Amen. Man's degeneration is manifest, is shown in one of the ways, by his perversion of sex. Idolatry will lead to immorality. Or you might look at it this way. When the concept of God is abandoned, the true concept of God, when I get a false concept of God, eventually I'll have a false concept of humankind. One will follow the other. Man will experience the identity crisis of a lifetime. Who am I? If there's no God, who am I? What am I? What does it matter what I am? So God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Some people think that, beginning in this verse downward, that Paul has in mind, perhaps he does, perhaps not, Because he was writing from Corinth, maybe he could see out of the corner of his eye that great temple to Aphrodite, who was worshipped sensually. The prostitutes would come out at night, a thousand of them, and seduce men and use the prostitute revenues for upkeep of the temple. In fact, it sort of became an aphorism. It became a saying, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth, meaning because of the sexual freedom in the city and the expense to upkeep the temple of Aphrodite. And so maybe in seeing all of this debauchery around him, with that in mind, he's writing these things. But you'll notice, beginning here, he's going to refer to sexual perversion, heterosexual as well as homosexual. However, the emphasis is upon homosexual inversion of God's created order because he's showing the depths to which mankind can fall. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now we have another change going on. Verse 23, they changed the glory of incorruptible God. Verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie. Verse 26, for their women exchanged the natural use 
for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The original language is much more explicit. Rather than man and woman, it's literally male and female. In fact, in your margins of your Bible, it might say that. It might have a little footnote. It's literally male and female. It's very specific. In fact, a better rendition of those two verses is as follows. The females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way, the males abandon the natural function of the female. There's been a lot of debate about these verses, especially among the homosexual community. There are now homosexual churches that will say that Paul isn't speaking about homosexuality here, when in fact, any linguist who knew Greek or knows Greek and knows the language, especially of that time, would have to dismantle that argument because of the two words that are used, natural and unnatural. The word here, natural, in Greek is kataphysin, two different words. And then the word unnatural is paraphysin. Both of them were ancient terms to specifically designate the difference between heterosexual and homosexual relations. That which is physis in the Greek, the natural order, or as often described back then, God's natural order in creation. In other words, the natural order of God in creation is what God said in Genesis and what Jesus reaffirmed in the Gospels. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, said Jesus, let not man put asunder. That's God's created order. Not everybody agrees with it, but that's biblical. God made them male and female, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. They were men and women. And that's God's order. Now, Paul's writing from Corinth. And he said to the Corinthians in his letter to them, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Now listen, it's not just one class of people here. Often this is quoted and people want to zero in on, listen to all the classes. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, ouch, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those who practice as a lifestyle, unrepentant in these areas, these things. And such, says Paul, were some of you. Not, and such are some of you. Such were some of you. That's your B.C. days, man, before Christ. Past tense. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Some of the Corinthians lived in this lifestyle. They lived in a very wicked city, a wicked culture. It pervaded everything. And he's speaking to Christians. You used to live like that. But you've been washed. You've been changed by the Spirit of God. Actually, in the Greek culture, it was taught by some of the Greek philosophers that homosexual love was the purest and the highest form of love. And some of the 
wealthy Greeks, the wealthy Greek men, had homosexual lovers while they maintained a relationship with their wife, and it was seen as culturally acceptable. So you that think we've come into a new age now, this is new thinking. Oh, no, it's not. It's as old as the hills and twice as dusty. And Rome was no different. It's thought that the first 14 out of the first 15 emperors of Rome were involved in homosexual practices. So the point Paul was making is you can't tell me God made you this way. That's to change the truth of God into the lie. Now there is a difference between a homosexual propensity and a homosexual practice. If a person has a propensity by virtue of their environment, by virtue of the way they were treated when they were young, by virtue of even if it is biology, there's a big difference between the propensity, the proclivity, the desire, the, its thoughts, and the actual following through and practice of it. You might have a propensity toward violence. But by the Spirit of God, it can be maintained, and you can walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Now, if you blow somebody's head off and say, genetic, man, I, I was made that way. Mm-mm. That's against God's natural order. That's wrong. Thou shalt not kill. You respect all life. So the difference between the propensity that may be in certain ones and the practice are two different issues. And as blatant as the scripture is and as plain as the scripture is, we must show love. We must teach that God can forgive and that God can change. And that God can redeem those years that Satan has taken. And that there is forgiveness at the cross, we sang, at the foot of the cross, where it's dealt with. Notice the judgment in verse 24, 26, and 28 in the verse, gave them up. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. This is not a good giving here. In the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them to vile passions, and the women exchanged the natural use. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. This is a very intensive New Testament verb. Part of the judgment of God is the restraining hand of God is removed, or the protective hand of God is curtailed. Now we talk about judgment coming to this country. And I've heard the saying, and I've said it, and I agree with it in part, that if God doesn't judge America, that he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And yet, I wonder if we're not experiencing now the judgment of God. Part of the judgment of God is that he turns people over to what they want. If they want vile passions and if they want leaders that have them, God will turn them over to what they say they want. Now look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Here might be an interesting assignment. 
You could take that list tomorrow, go find a news article or a headline about anything on that list. You could do it within the first hour of tomorrow's newspaper. Those are pretty modern headlines. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So, verse 28, they didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. They pushed God out of their moral, national conscience. God gave them over to a debased mind. A society that doesn't see fit to look to God, God will give them an unfit mind morally. So, you know what? The more that you look around and see the debauchery of our world, of our nation, it shows you, it reminds us of what happens to any society that pushes God out, that won't turn to God. We're capable of doing things we never dreamed a hundred years ago that we'd be doing. The last verse, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. You know what the pinnacle of debauchery is in any culture? More than just allowing things to happen, it's applauding those who do them. Giving our wholehearted approval to it. Now, in, in the days of Rome, there was the Colosseum, and I was reading this evening about the Colosseum, and I've been to the Colosseum, and I was just trying to imagine some of the horrors that took place there. As they would have the gladiator fights, and the lions, and the men and the women would be fed to the lions. Some of them are brothers and sisters in times past. And then in between some of the gladiator fights, they would take men and put leather helmets on them, and it would be blind men's bluff. They couldn't see a thing, but they'd have to run around, and they'd run into people, and they'd have weapons, and they would each have to kill the opponent, and whoever was left living at the end would be set free. He'd be the one prisoner that would have his freedom. He won it by killing everybody else. The records that we have from the time says that the crowd was worked up into an excited frenzy, applauding this kind of stuff. Now, while the person in the grandstands may never go and kill somebody, they're applauding it. How different is that than sitting in our living rooms or in a theater watching certain things on a screen saying, that was a great flick. In a sense, approving what is being done. Well, we'd never do that. But that captivating power of a media. It's, it's something to think about. I know that's heavy. And um, it should be, because the whole point of this is nobody escapes the wrath of God except through Christ. And either you have the righteousness of God, and there's only you can't be your own, or his righteousness, or your own righteousness, and then thus the wrath of God. So God's wrath is real. God's wrath is certain. It's on all of creation. And he begins with the immorality class of people, nations who from the beginning threw off God. And at the same time, the grace of God is as real as the judgment of God. I just sort of want to balance this out here. It's as real. In fact, the judge in the end will be the Savior. Tonight he wants to be your Savior. If you say, no, I don't want to be my Savior. Forget you. I don't like this. And if you reject the Savior, you will face him as judge. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. 
But next, when you see him, it'll be as judge, not as Savior. I've received him as Savior. Doesn't mean I'm better than you are. It just means I'm better off than those who haven't. Because I face him as my Savior. He makes me his child. And I'll never have to face him as my judge eternally. As he said in John chapter 5. There's a story about two friends that went to college in Australia. In their undergrad. One of them went to his graduate and postgraduate work as a lawyer, became an attorney. The other guy became a banker, studied accounting, got a job in a very good bank, good firm. The banker was eventually caught, arrested for stealing money, for um, absconding with a large sum of money. He embezzled, I forget how much. And he was going to go to trial and, interestingly enough, face the man he went to school with who was now a judge, his friend. And the Australian press made a big deal of it. You know, what's he going to do? Is this a biased case? How, how, do you, how do you remain unbiased in this kind of a case? It is said that the Australian judge, after findings were in during the trial, leveled the heaviest possible fine against his friend for what he had done. He should have known better. And the stiffest possible fine he leveled against his friend. And then as soon as the gavel went down, he stepped, came off the bench, put his robes off, went up to his friend and said, I have sold my house, I have depleted my savings, and I have paid your fine. As judge, he acted justly. As a friend, he acted graciously. And so God is the only one who could say, you're all guilty. And the gavel goes down. You, oh, I don't like that. You're no fair. Wait a minute. I paid the price for you to make sure that you would be in heaven forever with me. The judge wants to be your savior, and he can be. That's sort of the story of the, the book of Romans in a nutshell. But we have four minutes to finish chapter two, so let's do that. He leaves now the pagan immorality, and he speaks to an imaginary character in chapter two, a moralist, a critical moralist, uh, the kind of person who would say, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, God should judge those type of people, but I'm okay. You know, there's always that tendency to say, I'm at the top of the hill, and I look down at those on the bottom of the hill and say, those poor people down there, let's have a soup kitchen for them, and let's wash them up and clean them up, and I don't need any help, I'm on the top of the hill. Paul says, the standard on the top of the hill is the same as the bottom of the hill. In fact, those at the bottom of the hill usually recognize their need a lot quicker than those at the top of the hill, especially those who would judge others. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you, do you despise the riches and the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. 
The first group back in chapter 1 were practicing all the things they knew were wrong and yet approved of those who did them. Right? That's bad. But it's consistent. The second group is practicing all the things they know are wrong but judging others who are doing them. That's hypocrisy. And if I could impose a little statement for Paul, he is saying those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Therefore, O man who judges, he's speaking about a moralist who would judge others and not include himself. He's not saying that we shouldn't look at things discriminatingly or pass righteous judgment, which is a command of Jesus, but that we shouldn't pass judgment and forget about ourselves. It's amazing how we notice the sins of other people so readily and we're wearing them and we don't notice it. We're so lenient on ourselves. I think we'll end with that tonight since the time is up. And uh, you know what? We just have to pick it up next time. I always have good intentions. My intention is to cover so much more since this is through the entire Bible. And you think at this rate, you know, you'll have to do it in the millennial kingdom. No, actually, we won't need anything there. But there are certain parts of the Bible that are so rich, so fundamental, that you would be cheated unless you really understood them in their depth, in their magnitude. And the book of Romans happens to be one of them, so we slow down. And perhaps it's good to end on that note. Will he be your savior? Or will he be your judge? Is he now your savior? If not, he will be your judge. But you will face God. Everybody will face God. Well, I don't believe in God. Doesn't mean you won't face the one you don't believe in. The wrath of God is still revealed from heaven, but so is the grace of God. Here you've got a God who knows the thoughts of every human being and is the only one that can make a perfect righteous judgment because he knows motivations. Every thought you've ever thought. Even if a person didn't have the moral law of God but had general revelation and had some idea of God, every person has sinned even against his or her own idea of God to make excuses for moral behavior or misbehavior. That's just human nature. We're without excuse. And the one who decrees that, saying, I can forgive you. He places, and this is the, the beautiful thing about this, places all men under the sentence of death so that he can save all men with eternal life by just simply them believing, trusting Jesus Christ, not performing any works, not crawling and bloodying up their knees on some pilgrimage, not any works to be righteous with God, but placing their trust, that living act of trust in Jesus Christ. God will say, that's enough. That's good enough. You, if you do that, you turn to me. You turn from sin. You, turn, you believe in me. I'll save you. And he can do that tonight. That's the thing. Boy, you know, that was so freeing to me when I first found that out. I've been going to church all my life feeling like it wasn't good enough. Going up to the pastor of my church, the priest of my church, saying, I want to know that I'm going to be saved. He says, you can't know. You can't know? Well, you can know, he said, when you die. Until then, we hope. I said, you know what? I'm sorry, but that's not good enough. I think it's a little too late to find out you were wrong. I'd like to know now. And I found the Bible says you can know now. And if you trust in Christ tonight, by all the authority 
that Jesus Christ has given the church, you trust him for your salvation, you come to him, you will be saved. You will be a part of his kingdom. Those are his words. That's what he said. You pass from death into life. 